Welcome to another episode of Sounds Like These. I'm Lara Magnelli, I'm your host, and I'm back with another interview. This time I spoke with Jeremiah Gogo. I came across Jeremiah because he was recently an industry guest. He came to ICMP to visit one of our cohorts of students. And I remember looking at his job title and thinking, I have no idea what this person does on a day-to-day basis. Jeremiah Gogo is head of data and A&R analytics at Atlantic Records. It sounded big to me, it sounded important to me. I appreciate what data is, what big data is, analytics as well. And I also thought I knew the connection between data and music and how important that is. But it was really interesting to delve into it a little bit more with Jeremiah. He was keen to talk to me straight away, he was lovely and shared a lot about his path starting from economics and maths all the way to getting into the music industry, working for Warner Music Group, Universal Music Group and now Atlantic Records. Jeremiah was also really passionate about talking about some of the internship programs that he's put on both at Warner and Universal to ensure that people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds get access to the music industry. He stressed the importance of letting people know about the immense opportunities that you can get working within data and music. It was really interesting for me too. I did not know what he was doing as part of his role and now I do. And I also now appreciate that you don't have to be someone who loves numbers to work within data and music, which is good. There's hope for everyone. I really want to thank Jeremiah for his time and for sharing great advice for anyone who may be thinking about entering the data and analytics world within the music industry. There are surely many opportunities for you out there. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to subscribe or follow the podcast if you like what you're hearing. I think I'm starting to talk to more sort of like business people from the industry. And I really wanted to get you on the podcast because what you do, I mean, of course, you're going to talk about it in a, in a second, but what you do is not necessarily something that goes under the spotlight that often, but I think when we talk about data, there's a whole world to discover and the connection with music is really strong, but myself included, I don't necessarily understand the ins and outs of a job like yours. So it's going to be really interesting, I think. Thank you for having me. Appreciate of course. It. I think it'd be nice to start from music, which is something that we're probably more comfortable talking about. <laughs> and um, just want to know what's your first music memory? Hmm. Uh, oddly enough, and I'm not sure many people know this about me, so it might come as a surprise to people who know me that listen to this. Um, but I was eight years old when um, in my primary school they began to introduce music lessons for different instruments and um, I saw the trumpet and I thought oh this is shiny this is gold let me let me give this a go and I guess 15 years later I was I was still playing so um, I'm yeah I, I played the trumpet for a long time but that's the first kind of music quote-unquote memory that stands out to me because um, genuinely shock excitement at seeing a golden shiny instrument come into the school where um there wasn't that many resources in 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 the primary school that i had so kind of people coming in to do these things was oh my god 
let me give it a shot. So yeah, that's probably my first musical memory. And um, uh, not many people know that I've, I've gone through to grade six trumpet. And I guess the trumpet is not necessarily the first kind of like instrument that you would pick up. I mean, exactly. you would be exposed to many other instruments. So were you exposed to any sort of music that would have trumpet on? Or was it literally just the, how shiny and gold and amazing that instrument was that, you know, attracted you to it? <laughs> Probably, probably as simple as my mind was at the time, it was a shiny instrument, but I grew up in a household that listened to a lot of music and um, we, we went to church, which was quite musical in, in its nature. Um, so I was definitely exposed to the trumpet in like church and stuff like that, but I didn't, I don't think I put two and two together at that time. It was probably more, very, I don't, I don't want to give myself that much credit. It was very much just, hey, this is shiny. Let's, let's give it a go. But you lasted quite long with it, so well done. So in terms of music that you were listening to while growing up and in terms of your musical heroes, who were you sort of like looking up to? Oh, um, that's, a, that's a good question because I, I, I rarely think about this and I think uh, it feels like everyone's got an answer and I'm perhaps someone that doesn't. Um, growing up, I think on Saturday mornings, my distinct memories of going to football. So I played Saturday league football at the local park. And a lot of the time we'd wake up on Saturday and a lot of people who perhaps have African backgrounds or Caribbean backgrounds might have a similar story to me um, because my mom would be cleaning the house and blasting music really loud to get everyone out of bed. And um, so that, that was really kind of a lot of gospel music, a lot of... Um, Nigerian music which is the heritage of my family but um so so those are like my early influences I would say in, in terms of what developed my taste later on but um as I grew through the kind of teenage phase through puberty and um thinking I was too cool for school and listening to a lot of a lot of uh rappers from from the area that I was that I grew up in that that's perhaps where the my kind of formative years in terms of my taste in music um, was. It was gen genuinely just local rap and um, artists that come through in the kind of local hip hop scene. And um, I know in many territories around around Europe and actually around the world now, local hip hop is making a comeback. Italian hip hop, German hip hop, French hip hop, it's all kind of doing its thing in, 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 in the suburbs and um, kind of surrounding city areas of those territories so that's pretty much what I had back back in my days when I was a teenager and it, it feels like it's picking up again um with that kind of lo local push but this time it's able to take uh, a more mainstream platform which back then it, it, it never did it, it it never charted at all you'd never kind of uh, it, it was pretty hard to to, to access or, or perhaps not as friction free as it is these days with Spotify and things like that you were you were sending your friends' songs via Bluetooth on, on the Sony Ericsson mobile phones. I remember those days. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so your passion for music didn't like develop into a job, into a career straight away. So if I understand it correctly, tell me if I'm wrong, you ended up studying economics and mathematics, which is very far from music, I think. So how did you pick that path? How did you end up doing that? <laughs> um, I think the story is, again, might be similar to a lot of immigrant households where 
um, I didn't choose. It's not really much of your choice. It's kind of, you get forced down. Forced, forced might be the wrong word, but you get encouraged to go down a path that's perhaps more traditional in these kind of accounting, finance, medicine, just things that the generation prior to ours knew and accepted as standard and safe career paths to make a life for yourself, which is, again, totally understandable. As a parent at that time, you might have worked so hard to get to where you've got to and get your kids um, any opportunity, and you kind of just wanted them to play it safe and go get a fairly safe job that, that kind of guarantees you a long, long career doing um, a job like that. But um, obviously, as I'm sure we'll get to, I, I, I perhaps didn't decide to choose that. The reason that I, I specifically chose maths and economics was because um, I just had a knack for numbers fairly early on. Uh, I remember in the UK, we have uh, the equivalent of like a primary school SATs or SATs, which we called it um, at 10 and 11 years old. Um, and I remember scoring a hundred on out of a hundred on one of the maths papers at ten years old, and you kind of I kind of thought that that perhaps meant that I was a, a little bit good at maths, but it it came naturally in that uh, I I might not have been that great at writing subjects, and I think everyone kind of has their skills. Everyone kind of has areas that they find easier than others. Um, I I couldn't draw, couldn't write very well but I kind of understood numbers quite well so the path to to, to maths was um what my dad kind of assumed that that, that I go into a, a more financial role which is perhaps why um economics was picked up there too and I actually think economics is a really cool subject for everyone to to to, to know a little bit about because it teaches you a lot about the real world and um and is the less boring application of mathematics in my opinion um uh, so yeah, I've, I, I really actually in, enjoyed it. Um, one of the kind of core modules that I think really shaped the way that I think um, and was game theory, which is kind of uh, around decision making and why someone might make a certain decision. And we'll come on to this in a bit as well, but it has applications in every facet of the world, which includes music. Um, I just to jump forward a little bit, one of my weekly tasks is forecasting the chart, seeing where, where where might we end up at the end of the week, who might be number one. But then as part of this, a lot of game theory is involved because I need to think, hey, when we are going for this push for number one, the other label know we're going to be doing this and therefore might push harder. And therefore the forecast I initially put might change because now everyone's spending more money or pushing harder to get to the number one, which is the most kind of obvious application of game theory in my day-to-day -day job. Um, the, the, the forecast that I initially go with might change because of the forecast that I gave, if that makes any sense. I think you're making it sound way more interesting than I ever thought. <laughs> so that's great. <laughs> so, of course, so you did um, study there and you enjoyed it as well. So it wasn't just a forced decision. And when did you realize that you could actually combine your love for music with your skills? Um, I think the short answer is I didn't. Uh, I don't think I ever did. And I think that this is a an issue and something that the industry at large should probably address because uh, had I known and had people like me known, I think we will have had a wider pool of applicants um, or every year we will have a wider pool of applicants and be able to find more kind of super talented people that are also really interested in music. So the short answer is I didn't, I was very lucky. Um, as I said, 
I was my parents directionally or or suggested me to go in the direction of finance. Um, and I was on that path. I did internships at the Bank of England at Barclays. And I really tried my best to make the use of these uh, programs and um, charities. A lot of charities helped kids from lower income um, backgrounds or, or schools with perhaps um, schools with perhaps that were considered inner city postcodes. And at the time in my in my college, um, it was one of those postcodes that captured that, that captured the area. So I took full advantage, did some internships at, at, at banks, and um, I thought that that was going to be my path. That hey, my parents have chosen, and that's where I'm going to end up. But um, I decided when um, when I didn't know what I wanted to do to do a bit of googling uh, about what might be available, and really there wasn't much information, which is why I say perhaps the the industry needs to do something about this to to address that but uh, I saw a commercial intern job pop, pop up and when I saw it pop up it popped up at Universal Music Group I had no idea really much about Universal Music Group so did a quick Google saw hey this is the biggest major label in the world probably not a bad idea to just throw in an application and um, unbeknownst to me ended up interviewing loved the people there and got a job as a commercial intern, which gave me uh, a central lens. And for those that don't know much about a commercial function at a major label, it's kind of the central team that helps to power all the labels that sit under the universal umbrella. So they kind of help with um, partnerships and analysis, which is where it comes in later on in the story and um, and setting up the e-commerce store and all of those kind of functions for for the label and I was able to see all of these from quite a wide lens because I was the intern that did all the dirty work on all of the different functions of the commercial team which meant I got to see a lot of what the labels do and what jobs might be available for me to pursue in the future which um, as we all know kind of ended up down the um, anal analytics path. So you were an intern there for how long? Um, so the internships were supposed to run a year long. I was very fortunate and and blessed to um, to have done quite well in the first six months of the internship, and a job came up in the same department, the commercial department, as a junior analyst, and thus begins my journey into analytics. And um, I decided to take it. That was working on the Amazon account mainly. So I was analyzing data essentially to stop transshipments of CDs to other parts of the world and to ensure that we're correctly remunerated um, as a company for the sales to Amazon. That was the primary role, but then more broadly, the junior analyst title allowed me to explore analytics um, as big data was becoming a part of day-to-day -day operations in the music industry. So in addition to that kind of physical part of the role, which involved a lot of kind of Amazon stuff and um, overseeing quite a large account um, in terms of the data that came in from it. But then we also had the digital element, which is the streaming data. Um, and that's for those that aren't aware, um, a lot of the time, the kind of agreements mean that the company got tons of data from all of the partners that we had. And those were billions and billions and billions of lines all the time, um, every day. And it was uh, 
I think the, the industry was just getting used to this. And so was I. So I was fortunate enough to be getting used to and growing into big data as a part of the industry. Um, so yeah, that was the kind of junior analyst part. The main bulk of the role was around this kind of Amazon, um, Amazon role. But then I managed to dibble and dabble and develop my SQL skills and Python skills by diving into some of the data that existed um, from the digital partners that we that, that we had. So if you had to say in very simple terms, what was a day like for you in terms of like what exactly were you doing? So when you say data and when you say analytics, where and what were you looking for exactly? Like what was the ultimate goal that you were working towards? Cool. And um, I think that this is perhaps uh, where I can shift forward slightly to post this junior analyst role again. Um, I did that for a few months, uh, perhaps a year almost, and moved on to become a commercial analyst. So dropped the junior. And this is where I moved into a completely digital um, analytics space with um, completely immersed in streaming data. What did this look like day to day? Well, um, the commercial function, as I um, explained before, is a support function essentially for all of the labels under the universal umbrella at the time. Um, this meant that the labels will want to know things or analyze some of their artists, some of their campaigns or some of their releases, and we would support them in doing so. Um, so one example which I might give, and this is the ad hoc part of the role, one example that I might give is, um, Island Records were responsible for marketing Drake in the UK and um, Drake coming in, he did six nights at the O2 Arena in London and they wanted to see, hey, what impact did that have on his streaming in the UK? So what I would do is use data from Spotify, from Apple Music to say, uh, look at look location of streams you can look at where people stream from what type of people were streaming what age groups were streaming and when were they streaming around what times during the day were they streaming and you can plot this all out to say hey so he had a show on this night which um, meant that there was this uplift in streams mostly most of the uplift was seen in london and um and they were mostly they were mostly 18 to 24 year olds, for example. That's not actual data, but it, for example, it, it, it could have been um, that. And then when he did the second show, you kind of saw, hey, this show had uh, a, a few more uh, artists in streams in Birmingham. Why might that be? Perhaps there were chatter online on some Birmingham-based social page that, that, that caused uh, more people to speak about Drake's first night um, in London. And then, uh, going forward, you have the third, fourth, fifth, and basically it's plotting, I, I plotted it out, I delivered this report to Ireland to show, hey, what impacts on your streams can live shows have? And then it begin to, we begin to build a bigger framework, a bigger picture, we begin to bring in other people who have played at the O2, and then you can kind of deliver a project that says, all right, so generally live shows at the O2 can deliver what to an artist campaign when they are in London. And then it feeds into a bigger picture of the artist campaign more broadly. So these bits of analysis start off with one thing, they add on another thing, and then can feed into the larger conversation around, hey, how do we manage this artist campaign? So now in the future, when we're having a conversation about, okay, this artist is in London for a few days, where should they play? Who should they 
who should they speak to? They can bring or tap into this piece of analysis that was done on Drake and many other artists and say, all right, well, if they do a show in the O2, this is perhaps the uplift we might expect to see. This is perhaps where the uplift is. Perhaps this helps them to capture a younger audience because the younger audience are more tuned into these shows. All of these kind of things can, can come together. But um, so that, that's one of the kind of ad hoc pieces. Then generally I had the regular tasks, which everyone in any job kind of knows you have to do and weekly reports, monthly reports um, and daily reports sometimes. But these kind of involved putting together these data pieces showing perhaps a chart, for example, what was our most streamed track yesterday, every morning or and what was our what how have subscribers in the uk changed um, from month to month so these were the kind of regular reports which um i'm sure most most people in most jobs kind of have to do um so to, to kind of show at the end of the month what they've what, what they've accomplished um but i had more fun doing the ad hoc tasks like the example i've just explained what's really fascinating to me is the link between two separate areas of the industry. So for example, the live industry and the streaming industry and how data can actually make sense of it all and yeah. they can influence one another. I find it really, really interesting. I never thought about it this way. I, you know, I, I, I tend to think, you know, of course, the live music industry is still going strong besides pandemic, of course, but it's still one of the most, you know, important revenue streams for medium to big artists and then you think about streaming and all you tend to hear in terms of media is you know a lot of artists don't make enough money and then only the the ones at the top actually make the money and then when you start like you know putting together the jigsaw pieces and like kind of like make sense of the whole picture of course for kind of like big artists it's super interesting and yeah. i guess my next question is is this kind of like a, an area of the industry so data and all of that that only major labels can afford to invest into because you don't hear a lot about this in, in like smaller environments mm, oh, that's a good question um so i guess touching on the kind of live to streaming part of the industry it's not i mean that's something that uh i guess we we are doing more of now so um the company i'm working at now owns a um a live company called song kick who um, provides tons of data on 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 the live aspects of the world as well but that was just one example of one project which actually perhaps didn't get that much attention to be perfectly honest with you but um as you bring it up and as more and more people kind of figure out that this is this is the, the kind of things we should look at it it does it does uh it does gain more relevance um in in our industry um with regards to whether it's just major labels or larger companies looking at it um it helps to be a larger company because of the scale when you want to do something or compare to another artist you've now got more artists to compare to you can build a better picture um as perhaps uh for those that aren't uh, super data um literate or, or or might not necessarily understand why large and larger groups of values get you a more accurate result is um if you the, the classic guess the number of jelly beans in a jar or guess the number of jelly babies in a jar generally speaking this is uh, and this has kind of been proven many times but the more kind of guesses you get 
you take the average of those and you get closer to the to the um jelly to the actual number of jelly babies and this is the same in 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 music or, or similar in in any kind of um world of data is um you actually have so much data that you get a more accurate result because sometimes if you if i only had four artists on my roster and I was a small label and I did some analysis on these four artists and I said oh actually what happens when we do this that is the result it might just be for anomal anomalous results it might not necessarily be true quote unquote but the bigger that sample size is the closer to the truth that you get which is why um you kind of do want to have a lot of data and data helps you when you have more of it um of course they can go and acquire data and stuff like that but generally speaking the bigger companies and the majors do a bit more because um more they've got a bigger roster um essentially but uh that's not to say that no one can do so i mean the dsps now have got to a point that i think all of their four artist platforms are really really great spotify for artists Amazon Music for Artists, Apple Music for Artists, they're all at a point now that's so great, it almost is just, you're, you're getting just as much information as a major label will, will be having um, on, on, on yourself if you're an artist or if you're a manager on your artist or, or if you're just an interested third party that has access to their data. Um, and, and, and those kind of delve into as fine a detail as cities, um, where the source of your stream is, whether it might have come from a playlist or from an artist page or someone went and searched for it. Um, all of these, you, you can see all of these with just using those four artist platforms, which I think are super helpful and allows, um, allows data to be democratized across the industry so that anyone can kind of play a part in this, um, in this kind of new data, data-driven world of, of, of music. So now that you have more access to the data itself, what are the skills that someone would need to have to land a job like yours or similar career path? It's an interesting question because I think it's changing. Uh, and there are, there are teams in major labels that cater to kind of super super intense data literate people who might have like a PhD in statistics and really want to kind of sit down and crunch the numbers. We have teams like that. They generally are perhaps not as close to the day-to-day -day activities, but do build these models and uh, tools that are really useful for the people on the ground. And so you, you can have those, but then you also got people who um, might be uh, analysts that have some music knowledge and kind of understand data a little bit and can apply those learnings from the data to the day-to-day -day operations of the label and um th those that gets into where kind of i sit um i'm currently head of data and a r analytics at atlantic records in the uk and that helps us uh, and because i've kind of built the music industry knowledge and i've got and i've spent time in the industry and and, and working on the ground i can um, kind of apply the data knowledge that I've got um, to to pull the data and manipulate the data to 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 make to get the result or um, a piece of analysis that I want, but then also to know how to apply it, what kind of marketing activities have the desired um, desired result or what kind of um, audience are we trying to capture and how how best to do so. Um, so 
yeah, I think there is a wide range. I don't think that there's uh, there's a particular skill that's needed. People come into this industry with very little um, or, or or no kind of data knowledge, quote unquote. Um, but these are skills that can be developed on the job and tons of tools which kind of help give us a front end and, and give us the chance to look like um, chart metric, for example, um, is a tool that is quite popular. It's a third party tool that allows anyone to kind of go in and see, hey, what was added to which playlist? And it doesn't require a, a kind of detailed level of data literacy to, to get around. But um, so I say the skill level required, it's, it varies. There are tons of teams in major labels on the publishing side as well. And they have super detailed research and analysis teams through to someone who's just making uh, reports every morning in order to understand where, how many pre-orders have we done today and how does that affect um, our decision tomorrow? So um, yeah, I'd say that there's a scale. So there is hope. Yeah, there you is don't hope. just have to be like in love with numbers necessarily. So I yeah. like that. Yeah, and I mean, right now, I think there are so many resources for those that perhaps haven't been traditionally trained. Um, there are tons of these online courses that, like General Assembly or Udemy, that kind of teach can can teach you these these skills needed. Um, for example, querying big data. Generally speaking, um, you need some SQL skills to write the query to get the data. Most of these at this point um, are available online for people to, 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 to do in, in, in a fairly short period of time. In a couple of months, you can have, have the basic skills. And then um, I guess it's just putting it into practice from there. I just want to go back to something that you mentioned before. So when you were talking about growing up and the sort of like um, socioeconomic background that you came from, I just remember that I know that you have uh, been involved in uh, running an internship program for people from uh, lower socioeconomic backgrounds. And basically it was aimed at giving more access to the music industry to people from such backgrounds. And I think it's, um, it's really important and, and extremely relevant uh, that something like this exists because I was, um, I just came across with um some stats from 2020 so I mean two years ago and there's a number it's 16 percent of people in creative jobs so of course it's not only the music industry but only 16 percent of them are from working class backgrounds and together with this number there was also a comment that said that people from privileged backgrounds are more likely to shape what goes on stage on page and screen and I've seen this across different countries as well. Um, I'm not from the UK. I've seen it. It always feels like uh, because of all the sacrifices that you have to make when you're starting out in the industry. So unpaid internships and, you know, you get paid with glory and equity and, and being cool and all of that. Not everyone can afford that. So I want to know what was your experience like running these programs? And uh, yes, starting from there. Oh, yeah. And um, I, I think... You're, you're absolutely right. Everything you touched on, I think for most people working in our industry or any creative industry, you probably will have seen this at some point quite clearly. Um, and I think the it starts with something that you also mentioned, um, unpaid internships. Uh, it's It doesn't really lend itself to to allowing a fair playing field to those that, that might not be able to sacrifice months or years of their lives to to do these things. Um, and I think it 
a point that I touched on earlier was that um, I didn't know that this job existed when I was at Union. Um, people not knowing is, is is the start of the problem, I think, because generally speaking, the people that do know have family members, friends already in the industry. And if that industry is already made up of people from a certain socioeconomic background or upper class, then those family members and friends will be the people that find out about the roles, um, which generally creates this kind of chain of um, of, of, of constant uh, constant backing of uh, of one kind of class of people. Now, um, so my experience was I was very blessed to be kind of helped by people who who thought, oh, actually, if people from this kind of situation in life can can go on and do some amazing stuff, then. Uh, why don't why don't I pay it forward? So uh, during my time at Universal, I was the founding co-chair of the staff charity committee where we went around and done a bunch of charitable stuff. But my personal motivations for being uh, co-chair of the committee was um, was working to find opportunities for kids from lower privileged backgrounds or lower socioeconomic circumstances. Um, I grew up on an estate in South London, which is quite common. Uh, the story for a lot of us who kind of grew up on estates you kind of have a life that people uh people think is perhaps a, you, you go through some challenges you, you have to get kind of get through things and then um quite often you see the people around you go on to do some great things and perhaps um, not so great things and uh, i think just giving more opportunity allows for people to a see see what's possible b experience what's possible but then C, which I think is the most important part, is getting that kind of start on your CV. Once you've experienced what's possible and you've got a start on your CV, you now have something to talk about. So you go to your actual job interview and say, hey, yeah, I've done an internship at Warner Music Group or Universal Music Group. And I can then go on to interview it. Even if it's not in music, you've, you've, you've got a conversation at the interview, which unfortunately we know too well experience is required for so many roles even entry-level roles that it's 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 almost crazy at times like we we want to hire someone who already has experience in this area but we're giving them experiences it's like we, we need to start somewhere and generally speaking uh where people start is as you mentioned skewed um away from from the working class people so um the program that I started or the idea that I had was um, the quote unquote open desk program. The idea for me was any department that had a spare desk or an open desk would take use that rather than leaving it empty, but use that to fill it by um, getting an internship to someone from a lower socioeconomic background. And it's at no cost to the departments. It would be funded centrally by the kind of charity or charitable um, part or CSR portion of, of, of kind of the company's resources. And that was kind of my vision. It it worked out to it worked out to to, to actually manifest itself. And um, perhaps it was a long journey trying to kind of navigate corporate politics and how things work. But um, I feel like we got there in the end and at Universal managed to set that up. And then um, I left to take up my job at Warner Music Group to work centrally there. And um, one of the first things I had done when I started was um, try to get something similar set up and fast forward two years. And we've just had six interns come in in six different departments across uh, different labels, international marketing, 
um, and it's been it's been great to see. So I think uh, I really want to shout out Warner for having the foresight and actually having the the heart. I would say to to kind of go ahead and put some resource towards this. But um, I think the proof is in the pudding that it's not it's not to do it out of a charitable cause or a charitable nature. But we know that kind of diverse work workforces and diverse leadership teams leads to better results. Like there's tons of studies in companies that have shown this in the past. So um, I, I think not only increasing diversity from gender, race, um, sexual orientation or or kind of class, but um, when we get to this kind of uh, the, the class issue or the, or the, or the socioeconomic background, um, our experiences are so important to running a company that sells it sells an emotive product music is an emotive product that we're trying to sell it's not it's, and this is no offense to any of the other companies we're not selling ketchup or shampoo where perhaps it's um very easy to forecast and it, it doesn't rely on on emotive marketing as much um in in, in music uh the, the music that we sell uh say a rapper who comes from uh, a perhaps lower socioeconomic background or an estate in 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 London, you therefore need people from that background to understand the artist, to understand their kind of journey, to understand where they've come from and where they're going to, and the story that they're trying to tell in their music. It, we, we can't sit in a room full of upper class people trying to market this this artist, and I hope it's super obvious as to why that's wrong. Um, but we we should have. A diverse range of people to sell a diverse range of music which we do um so yeah I, I hope to continue that but the open desk program i've been super super proud of and, and, and something that i need to shout out um rosie from hr who, who who've done a ton of work to to, to to help make it happen but um yeah it's something that i hope really continues in the future no it's brilliant uh to hear it and it all completely makes sense and i think it makes even more sense if it's someone who's got the data and the numbers to prove that all of this has been studied and it that's the way it should be you know it's not just as you were saying just doing it for the sake of doing it or looking better or you know just jumping on the edi train as as many companies of course are doing um so in terms of resources that let's say someone from um working class background could tap into to get into the music industry is there anything that comes to mind that you would really want to like put out there um yeah i mean i think we're doing or a ton ton of kind of central um companies are doing a good job of putting events out there um there are there's a publication called music ally who throw a few events and um, i met some really important people at a music ally networking event where i was then able to navigate my career from universal to warner quite well and that was me just turning up out of a, a random day after work but you've got networking events that take place you've also got bpi who do these online courses which are available for people to kind of sign up to enjoy um so, but these are all on the recorded music side, which is where I kind of have a, a little bit more of uh, an expertise um, purely out of my experience. But yeah, I feel like there are tons of companies out there that, that, that do events. And I think putting yourself out there, taking yourself to events. And, and for those that are perhaps um, not wanting to, to, to be in massive groups of people and um, might not necessarily want that kind of socialization. And there are also tons of online forums. I know for a lot of young black music professionals, I'll get the exact name for you, for you after this so that you can include it in any show notes, but there are tons of um, companies that help young black 
creatives and young black music professionals to get in because um i think that that's that's something that i've seen um from a personal perspective but also the data shows that we're under indexing based on the kind of creatives and and, and artists that are coming out of the other end of our companies thank you that'd be great i kind of got to the end of my question list but i just want to finish with um just wrapping it up with um going back to music what are you listening to at the moment any recommendations oh um let me check my my spotify like songs but i feel like i've gone full circle i've gone through phases of different kinds of music and i mentioned earlier on i started uh with kind of local hip-hop and i've gone around gone through like lo-fi parts and gone to listen to more um alternative and come all the way back around to kind of where it started it feels like so um yeah i feel like i'm listening to a lot of london a, a lot of london based music but then also um as i mentioned the local hip hop from other european territories which is making a comeback and um, there's an artist in london who's just had a number one album called central c um he actually dis distributed um as he's independent did his distribution via via warner but um he has done an amazing job amazing campaign and managed to connect with amazing local hip-hop from tons of different territories um and he he had a track on his album which featured i believe um someone from each of these different french french german italian and spanish um kind of uh, local hip hop scenes. Uh, I'll try and find the name for you uh, on the album, but yeah, Central C I think is amazing right now. And he's tapping into the local hip hop scene in all of these European territories, which I think is absolutely amazing and insanely intelligent from him and his team to do so as well. I think it's always nice when you have that connection with the local culture as well. So the subcultures and then of course, how it applies to the different countries because of course Absolutely. a rapper from Italy would talk about stuff that's not necessarily the same that you would hear from Londoner but they're still common ground it's it's really it's really interesting yeah yeah the track is called uh, Eurovision actually okay the makes, sense. Eurovision. Yeah. makes sense yeah we put a bunch of European hip-hop artists on it um, and they're all amazing rappers don't understand everything that's being said because I don't speak all of the languages but it's an amazing piece of music and I, and I think people like that who who are kind of really a part of the culture and tapping into the culture and um, growing up and developing as part of the culture means that they also have a story to tell um, and the music has a lot of substance. Nice one, I'll check it out for sure. Well, thank you, uh, Jeremiah. It's been thank great. You. Thank you so much, Sarah. Appreciate the invite and um, thank you so much for having me.